Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic. It's our first edition in six months and I'm pleased to say that normal service has now resumed. In this program, a dietitian tells us how to stay healthy and hydrated during Ramadan. In the studio, we have Ismail Saf from the Islamic Hip Hop and Nasheed Group Mecca to Medina. Yes, yes, assalamu alaikum, big up to one and all. <laughs> Bringing a little Jamaican Islamic flavour, you know, Islamic. We were going to have Sheikh Ahmed Tajani Ben Omar from Chicago in the studio, and even though he's travelled from the other side of the world, he is at the other end of the phone line on the other side of London in Hounslow. Ramadan is upon us and Muslims around the world are opening their hearts and minds to embrace the month of fasting. We're also opening our gullets to make up for what we miss out on during daylight hours. But what effect does fasting have on the body and how can we make the most of abstinence? Asmina Gavinji from the British Dietetic Association enlightens us. When you fast, you're not going to be able to digest food because you're not eating food. And when you're not digesting food, you're not going to get nutrients and blood sugars going up in your bloodstream. So if you think about it, you know, if you've missed a couple of meals, you start to get a bit lightheaded. And that's actually because your blood sugar is going down and that reduces the supply of sugar or glucose to your brain. And that makes you feel a little bit lightheaded, perhaps even dizzy, perhaps even faint. You probably will get a headache. That's that, The headache is a result of the combination of the low blood sugar and low fluid because you will also be dehydrated. So bearing in mind we can't have food or fluid for I think it's about 16 or 17 hours depending where you are in the UK or indeed the world. How can we counteract some of that lightheadedness? I think it's important to look at what you do before you start the fast and after you break it because it is possible to fast healthily if you follow a few basic steps. So what I would suggest is that when you wake up and before your fast, try to have a, a meal that is going to give you slowly released carbohydrate. Now, when we eat carbohydrate foods, our blood sugar goes up. Certain carbohydrates will make your blood sugar go up very quickly. So these would be like the mitai and the sugary sweets and the sugary drinks. That's what you want to avoid. You want to get to the stage where you're actually eating foods that make your blood sugar go up slowly and go down slowly so that you are maintaining some level of blood sugar throughout the morning. And the foods to choose for that are called low GI or low glycemic carbohydrates. And examples of those are, um, you know, a whole grain roti, or if you make a roti with millet or bajra flour, that's a very good low GI food. Basmati rice or lentils are actually good low GI. So dals and rice are very good. I don't know if you could stomach that in the morning. Um, or a cereal that's got lots of fiber and is actually slowly digested. Dried fruit and nuts are also a good way to help you to get a nice low blood sugar. What about water? Because we're supposed to drink between one and a half and two and a half litres of water a day. That's really difficult when you're fasting. So should you just go hell for leather in the morning and try and drink a litre and a half of water? Or is that a bad idea? I don't know how easy that would be for you <laughs> and me to drink. I think people struggle to get through that even in a day. But I think it's a really important consideration. Um, drink as much as you can before you start your fast and that could be for a couple of hours before. Um, remember that salt is going to attract water so if you've had something very salty at that time in the morning then you're not going to be making the best use of any fluid that you've drunk so ideally don't have salty foods and have lots of water and that will help you to conserve water and obviously when you break the fast in the evening the first thing to have is your glass of water. 
you've spent your whole day fasting and working and fasting and praying and all you can think about at the end of the day is a big fat samosa and a big plate of rice with lamb. <laughs> Doesn't that sound delicious? Um, isn't it normal for us to feel sorry for ourselves? We've fasted all day and actually well done, you know, we've done really well. And it is those indulgent foods that tend to be the most tempting foods at that time of the day. But consider this, you actually could be getting through a whole day's calories in one meal if you do that. And that's not necessarily going to help you health-wise, weight-wise and, and energy-wise actually. So have your glass of water. Have your dates, which are a great way to get your blood sugar up very quickly. If you're feeling lightheaded, then go for a sugary drink. You don't need to have masses, but it will just help you to get your blood sugar up and your brain sugar up so you start to feel better. And then have a slowly digested meal, such as dal and roti and basmati rice. And it's fine to have a little bit of chicken curry or, or meat or mutton curry, but just watch how you cook it. So you're not going to have very fatty meat. You're not smothering it in oil or butter or ghee. Make sure you're measuring your oil in your butter, trying to avoid butter if you can. Use perhaps rapeseed oil or olive oil, which are healthier fats. Not too much salt so that you're not going to again get dehydrated. Lots of fluids and remember those fruit and vegetables. That was Asmina Govindji from the British Dietetic Association telling us how we can be a little bit healthier this Ramadan. In the studio we have Ismail South from the Islamic Nasheed group, Mecca to Medina. Ismail, what's your eating strategy? I'd be straight with you, alhamdulillah, just before we, um, the fast commences, um, we, we make um, cereal, we make it light, we do either cereal or like toast and, toast and eggs and of course dates and yeah. some milk. Um, not all the time we have toasted milk. Sometimes we just have toast and eggs and, or cereal. We have that in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then we start the fast. Um, we go by the Islam channel normally um, because we notice that all the channels are, say, different times. Yeah. And then, yeah, when we break fast, it depends on the day. So if I want to spend it at home, I'm, I'm normally in the week I spend it at home. Mm-hmm. Maybe two days in the week I'll spend it with the brothers. Right. We'll go to a particular mosque. Yeah. Or we go to a brother's house and we all hang out. We make a below away bit. from the women. Yeah, and then of course <laughs> once every once a week, we every, all of our families will come together. That's nice. All the brothers and their wives and all the and yeah, so that, that's how the strategy. We, we we pinpoint certain mosques, the mosques that we know the, the, the good cooking. Really? Yeah. So you are quite. This is a very male way of thinking. This is it. I'm telling you. So um, you're shopping for your iftar. Yes. So, so where like, should we go then? Right. I'll be straight for the good, good, nice places to do nice iftars is the Park Lane Mosque. Okay. Hence Park Lane. Obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and then you have got the Good Street Mosque. Okay. They they do the and then there's also the Ladbroke Grove Mosque. Okay. Right. Um, it depends on the person. If the person's a bit posh. The Good Street and Parkway will be cool with them. To go to the Labrador Grove Mosque, it might they might be a bit scared on their way there because surrounding areas, is, it, you've got to be um, in the urban frame of mind. Well, we'll be running some Ramadan blogs on our award-winning site, Comment is Free Belief, which is our blog on ethics and religion. So keep an eye out for that. Something we looked at in a previous programme was converts to Islam, why they do it and what their experiences are. Author Richard S. Reddy has taken the subject one step further by looking at a growing phenomenon in Britain, black converts to the religion. Here's a taste of his book. People's views of Muslim converts, and of Islam in general, are often dependent on a personal contact with Muslims and the knowledge of Islam. This is particularly the situation with the black community. 
Without generalizing too much, it will be true to say that those who've had relationships with Muslims and have first-hand knowledge of the faith tend to have a more favorable estimation and are less inclined to rely on the usual negative sources for their opinions or fall back on stereotypes. Having said that, this does not mean that those with Muslims' sons and daughters, partners or parents are immune from prejudiced words or behavior. Research for this book has shown that some of the most critical opinions of Islam come from people, usually with their own strong beliefs, who feel betrayed by their friends' or relatives' choices. Just as some of those with the most racist views can be found amongst those whose relatives or friends are involved with a person of a different ethnicity, so those with Muslim relatives often hold bigoted opinions about Muslims. In recent years, the black Muslim movement in Britain has gained a reputation for cleaning up black people who've been failed by society or have fallen foul of the law. A lot of this work goes unheralded and is low-key, but has been efficacious for many of the beneficiaries. Yet even those who can see the differences Islam has made in the lives of loved ones often remain sceptical about the faith and those connected with it. Richard came into our studios to talk about the book, why he wrote it and what he learned. In terms of why people became Muslims, there was no one sort of uh, stock response. I think that both 9-11 and 7-7 sort of has generated tremendous interest in Islam. But um, in terms of, I would say, the, the, the black community, people who uh, tend to be in their 30s and 40s were definitely influenced by uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X film, but also Malcolm X per se, um, with regard to the way he sort of melded spiritual, uh, social and political ideas. And, the, you know, his sort of um, figure as being a sort of a no-nonsense black person who um, sort of came up against uh, forces of oppression but used his uh, beliefs to actually overcome them. And I think that was, um, him being an iconic figure was one of the, uh, has been an inspiration to, uh, to, to many Muslims. But, you know, from my conversation, people, you know, said they were attracted by uh, the teachings uh, with relation to, you know, Islam and, and peace, Islam being a, a sort of worldview that dominates not only your sort of your spiritual sort of um, approach to life, but also your, your physical, your emotional, your economic. It's, 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 it's a worldview. And, and many people were, you know, sort of totally taken by that. Also, for some people who, um, let's say, uh, society had failed them, you know, what Islam sort of provided them was, was discipline. It provided them with focus. Is there a black Muslim movement in Britain? Um, again, the, the actual term black Muslim, uh, as I sort of explain in my book, can, for some people, be an oxymoron. Because, you know, the idea of being both a, a black and a Muslim, you know, you're just a Muslim. Oh, of course, because, yeah, Muslim transcends yeah, boundaries well, exactly. and yes, ethnic exactly. identity. Yes, yes, okay. Exactly. So, you know, so, you know, just, just asking that question. Some people say, well, you know, that's a, it's a contradictory term. I'm just a Muslim who happens to be black. But clearly in America, there is a black Muslim movement. Well, Nobody would deny that. No, so. no, no. Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. I mean, and, and in this country, obviously, there, uh, there is the nation of Islam who are black Muslims. Um, and they've been around for over, what, 20 odd years and clearly identify with the condition and the position of black people, not only in this country, but in the diaspora as well. Mm. Uh, you also have, obviously, black uh, Sunni Muslims, um, some of them, uh, for, some for whom, you know, the issue of identity is, is important. Mm. But you have others who say, you know, I'm just a Muslim, you know, and that's the most important thing, and I'm part of a wider community of Muslims. 
What do black Muslims or Muslims who are black bring to established communities? When people think of Muslims in Britain, they think of places like Bradford and Birmingham and Manchester. It's very South Asian. I think they obviously bring a culture that is um, in this country is either from Africa or from the uh, from the Caribbean. Uh, they bring with them, I would say, a vibrancy. Uh, many of them are, are converts. And you know, with converts, there there is a sort of a um, a sort of a, a zealous approach, and I use that positively mm. in terms of a first and a hunger. How are white converts different from black converts? Uh, without generalising, I think one of the main differences are uh, has been or is that uh, most uh, black Muslims do come from. Uh, well, most of those I spoke to came from a Christian background, mm. so they were familiar with faith faith-related matters and issues. Um, and obviously at some point they kind of walked away from Christianity and then subsequently reverted, because they do use the term revert. revert and not convert. And not convert. Mm. So, you know, in my book I use the two terms interchangeably. But worry, I, so do I. <laughs> clearly explain um, what I mean by that. Um, but they sort of um, are familiar with religion. It wasn't a case of, you know, faith played no part in their lives prior to their uh, reversion to, to, to Islam. You know, uh, a lot of the white converts, that hasn't been the case. Um, so I think that's a significant difference. Also with regard to, say, the nation of Islam, mm. um, that's specifically uh, more or less a black-related Muslim movement. Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't can't see any don't, white people um, being part of the I haven't been aware of that I'm not aware mm. of that in terms of my, my work and conversation so I think that's a major difference as well have you ever thought of becoming Muslim no no because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian um, but fascinated by Islam that was Richard S Reddy who's written a book about why black Britons are turning to Islam in the studio we have Ishmael South and I'm very excited to say that we have joining us on the line from the other side of London, Sheikh Ahmed Tijani Ben Omar. Ishmael, why did you convert to Islam? Um, myself, I was inspired by reading, there were many instances, but the main things were um, inspired by Malcolm X, by his speeches, by his lectures, about his life story. Um, there was a book my brother gave me called Malcolm X on Afro-American History where he talked about um, the history of black people in the Western diaspora um, and how a lot of us came from Muslim societies. That was the first thing. And then, the, then when, because before I never used to see Islam as a religion for everyone, I thought it was just a South Asian mm. religion. So when I started to learn that Islam, they believe in Jesus, they believe in Moses, I thought, oh my God. Then I, then I learned that, G that the Muslims believe in one God, they don't believe in a trinity. That just made 100% sense with me. He said that that's what I believe. I believe there's one God. I don't believe in the Trinity. So that, just those two things, just said, yes, I believe in Islam. But then the rest came later. Because when, I, when I later knew that you had to give up drinking, give up smoking, and give up certain things, I thought, okay, maybe when I'm an old man, I convert to Islam. <laughs> when you don't need to do those things anymore. <laughs> yeah, or, or something like that, yeah. Um, yeah, and then, but then sooner or later, I realised you never know when you're going to die. But those were the main things. So I'm by reading about Malcolm X, and then, because he was a, I saw him as a great role model. And through him, and also another good inspiration for me is what, there was a book called African Glory. Mm. Um, and basically there's a chapter on it. The, the, the book is just chapters of inspirational people in Africa. And there's a chapter in the book on Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So when I read, that was the first time I read uh, just solely about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So when I read about Prophet Muhammad, 
piece of paper. And I thought, oh my God, this man sounds like a lovely man. I would like to know more about him. So from there, I wanted to get to Quran. And then from there, that's, that's where it started. Sheikh Ahmed, are you there? Yes, beloved, I'm here. Asalaamu Alaikum, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, and how are you all doing? We're, we're doing great here. It's a great honor uh, to be joined with you under the auspices of The Guardian. <laughs> and I'm really uh, 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 um, uh, honored uh, to be with your honorable noble persons. The pleasure and privilege is all ours, Sheikh. Now, yes, you, you live in Chicago, but you're originally from Ghana. Yes, I'm, I was born in Ghana, and uh, although born to uh, Muslim parents, but I attended the Methodist Missionary School, where I studied the Bible, uh, inwardly digested, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, I had a good understanding of what uh, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of mankind, taught, uh, which is exactly what I believe the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, the Holy Prophet Muhammad also taught exactly as that. Uh, and uh, I became a better Muslim by going to the Methodist Missionary School. And now I live in Chicago for almost about 30 years now. Ismail, tell us about your experiences. There is sometimes prejudice and yes. a superiority complex yes. between different ethnic groups. Yes. Is this something you've encountered? Yes, this is a reality. Um, it happens between... I've seen it... I've, it happens between Asians and Arabs. I've seen where a lot of um, Arabs brothers say, Brothers, um, you want to learn Islam? Don't go to Asians. They don't teach you the right Islam. Come to us, the Arabs. You know, And then... Many so then you see likewise where there's there's rifts or people say oh Asian Muslims oh don't go to the Arabs the Arabs think they know too much but they don't do what we do and then you see um people of other ethnicities within the Muslim Ummah like one time there's a place where we used to go to eat or pray and they used to say Malaysians only so the, you want to pray Maghrib. And you're in an area, yeah. and you just want to pray in a mosque because you want to get the vibe, you want to get the sanctity and peace. And they say, sorry, you can't pray here. Because you're not Malaysian. You're not Malaysian. So it's the, the racism. But the Malaysians are like the Swiss, they're neutral. Yeah. Norm, personally, the Malaysians are lovely people, but I'm just saying this organisation. Really? If, for example, you're in central London, yeah. and you want to go, go somewhere to pray, you don't want to pray in the middle of the street, you just want to pray in a nice mosque. So this would be the nearest place. Mm. So there's there the many brothers that I know have faced racism, um, and prejudice from peoples of different nationalities mm. within the so-called Muslim Ummah. Do you think? Do you think white converts are more highly prized than black converts? White converts, yes, because what what we notice is um, when a white person becomes a Muslim um, today, tomorrow he's on the podium and he's given the title Sheikh. Ah, can I come in? Well, it's my Yes, yes uh, beloved sister, I want the whole world to know <clears throat> that in Islam. When one comes to declare himself as a Muslim, uh, uh, um, if he is black, yeah, it's all right. But if he's white, he's much more appreciated because they think in, in the minds of many people, especially Arabs and Indo-Pakistanis, and even some of the blacks, they think it is much difficult and almost impossible for a white man to become a Muslim uh, uh, much easier for a black man to become a Muslim. But the white man is considered superior, even than an Arab or Indo-Pakistani. Is that something you'd agree with, Ishmael? This is what I've seen among Muslims. Yeah, yeah. Many Muslims of, of Asian and Arabian origin have told me this is what they see in their community. 
I expect it would be an issue, especially in the area of marriage. Definitely. Just anecdotally, Definitely. I know I have friends who say that if they came home with a white Muslim, their parents would be delighted. Came home with a black Muslim, they'd be very worried. Oh boy, beloved sister, I, I need to interrupt. Go on, interrupt. Uh, I need to interrupt <laughs> because I got a lot to say. Okay. Do you know that in an Islamic book called uh, the the Reliance of the Traveler, it is written that uh, uh, concerning the qualifications of and the, uh, 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 of one uh, of marriage, it is written that. Uh, it is impossible, it is not allowed for uh, an Arab woman to be married to a non-Arab. It is not allowed for an Arab woman to marry a non-Arab. It's not compatible. Why? Because she is superior than any other person who is non-Arab. And that, but an Arab can marry a black woman, a white woman, or an Indi, Indo-Pakistani woman, or so to speak, Indonesian or Chinese. But a, uh, an Arab woman is more considered superior to others, so she cannot marry any other than an Arab simply because of some misconception of what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had said. They said he said uh, in Arabic, "Inna Allah Arab." That is to say, God has chosen the Arab over those who are non-Arabs. But that is not what it meant. But because of this, Arab people feel proud and sometimes very, very arrogant and stubborn. But I don't allow them to act like that. When I meet them, I humble them with the Holy Quran, and not only with the Holy Quran, and the Bible also. Obviously, and not all Indians, Pakistanis, and Arabs are racist. Towards black Muslims. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to put that in there in case I just... Definitely. The reason why yes. the Sheikh mentioned that book, because that book mm. is in a lot of mosques today. Because Rakeen had the book, um, uh, Rakeen, another member of my community, we was at his house mm. celebrating the birth of his baby with Sheikh Tanjani. And Rakeen had the book in his collection. Mm. And the Sheikh said, look, the, the, he's talking about the racism, uh, institutional, like as we talk about institutionalized racism, racism in, the, in, the in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's also Islamic institutionalizing, institutionalized racism. Mm. And the Sheikh quoted this book. Mm. And I'm thinking, hold on, this book is in nearly every mosque I've seen in the UK. Yeah, that's and, quite worrying. Yeah, it's very worrying. Because it does reinforce that sort of racial hierarchy. Yes, definitely. Okay, uh, beloved make... sister, I wanted to know, and the gentleman, that uh, uh, it is very easy for an Indo-Pakistani, uh, Arab, or white, or any other color to marry a black woman. But however, when a Muslim man marries, uh, 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 it, it is very hard. It's not even acceptable for a black Muslim, no matter how good he is, to marry an Indo-Pakistani woman. It is considered taboo. Is there a black Muslim movement in Britain or is it something that's very specific to America because in America it's obviously tied in with civil rights? Um, yes. Okay, shake. <laughs> yes. Ismail, is there a movement in, in Britain? Britain? I would say yes, it's developing. So whereby in America, with we know that the, 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 the forefront of the black Muslim movement was started with the Nation of Islam and then when Wolf Dean Muhammad, um, may God bless his soul, um, um, the, started another organisation then it's branched off from there in the UK there is a developing 
um, black Muslim movement. But to be honest and straight with you, it's not as organised as it is in America because mm. America, um, they were much, I would say, 20 years mm. ahead. Well, there was a real sort of here. political and social and yes. economic need. Yes. Likewise, there is a need here. Mm. But what's happening here, there's many forces that seem to divide us. Because, for example, what's ha- what's, what happened was in the UK, mm. in the 80s, a lot of the 70s and 80s, a lot of there were a lot of African Caribbean Muslim reverts. There were one main community in London. So what happened through um, propagation and things like this? Different people came from America, came from Saudi Arabia, and they came with money. They said, "Oh, come and join me. I will give you money. I'll pay for all your Hajj." So people broke off from that um, organization, and then they started up their own groups. So now we have pockets of different African and African-Caribbean communities, Muslims, who belong to different organisations or affiliated to different groups and organisations that are affiliated to foreign countries. But now what's happening, Alhamdulillah, all praise due to God, these people are beginning to see the conspiracy, beginning to see the, the fallbacks and now starting to do work in the community and starting to work together. And this is something actually we done with Sheikh Tijani the other day. There were, um, we done something with Sheikh Tijani in Harlesden, which is the inner city in northwest London. And we had the heads of four major Muslim African Caribbean organizations, as it were, as you say, or groups. And they they all divide, not, not, not the, the maliciously divided, but they are divided. So with the help of Sheikh Tijani and Sheikh Abdullah Kim Quick, who's a well-respected American imam, they were, they were able to come together, which was very rare in the country. So there's much more. And I speak to my colleagues in Sheffield, Bradford, Birmingham, and the same thing seems to be happening there. So I would say it's developing. Uh, Sheikh Tajani, thank you very much for joining us uh, all the way from Hounslow. You're most welcome, beloved. And thank you for the opportunity and honour to be with you. And God bless the Guardian. Well, Jazakallah to my studio guests, Ismail South and Sheikh Ahmed Tijani Ben Omar. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was presented by me, Riaz Atbat, and produced by Andy Duckworth. Until next month, when we bring you a special report from Berlin, Wa alaikum as and don't forget to put the fun in fundamentals.